calling all operatives. From now to March 30th, MGM National Harbor invokes your skills to play Covert Cash, a spy-themed kiosk game series where classified missions, hidden rewards, and daily thrills await. Sign up for MGM Rewards to play and unlock up to $25,000 in hidden free play daily and entries into our grand escape car drawing on March 30th. Visit MGMNationalHarbor.com slash Covert Cash to begin your mission. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. Former President Donald Trump has officially been indicted. Again. Good afternoon. Today, an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with felony violations of our national security laws, as well as participating in a conspiracy to obstruct justice. That's Jack Smith, the special prosecutor for the case. He made a statement Friday afternoon. We have one set of laws in this country, and they apply to everyone. Applying those laws, collecting facts, that's what determines the outcome of an investigation. Nothing more and nothing less. So this indictment stems from the investigation of hundreds of classified documents that went to Mar-a-Lago after Trump left the White House. Devlin Barrett reports on national security and law enforcement for The Post. He's been following this case from the beginning. The indictment was unsealed Friday afternoon, and Jack Smith spoke for the first time before the cameras, uh, standing before an American flag to describe how important it is for the national defense and for the safety of the U.S. military for people to treat uh, classified information carefully and securely. And even though it's the second indictment for Donald Trump, all indictments aren't created equal. This one is still a huge deal. It's the first time a former president has been charged with federal crimes. So I think it is a test of of a number of things. I think this case will be a, a major test, not just of Trump. It will be a significant test of the Justice Department and the court system and the FBI. But I think what you're seeing right out of the gate is that the government and the Justice Department is signaling we intend to put the former president on trial as soon as possible. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm your guest host, Rhonda Colvin. It's Friday, June 9th. Today, Trump's second indictment. We're breaking down what we know about the charges related to these classified documents and why this historic indictment will prove to be the ultimate test for the Justice Department. Okay, so let's back up, Devlin. What do we know right now about the indictment, and can you catch us up to the specifics of the case and where it dates back to? It is a startling 49-page indictment consisting of 38 separate counts involving dozens of alleged crimes. Uh, Donald Trump is charged in 37 of those counts, uh, and an aide to Donald Trump named Walt Nauta is charged in uh, six of those counts. The first 31 counts are for willful uh, mishandling of national defense information. Those are all uh, charges against Donald Trump. Um, There are other charges uh, in which the former president and his aide are both charged uh, for things like obstruction, uh, conspiracy to obstruct, 
and um, scheming to uh, conceal, which is all about how they allegedly hid documents, even as the government was saying, we need these classified documents, we need these classified documents. And Trump, with the help of, a, of an employee, ba allegedly set out to prevent the government from re retrieving classified documents, including one document about a foreign government's nuclear capabilities. Um, it's, it's a remarkable, remarkable document. And this investigation began, uh, it's, it's really a saga. It started in 2021 as the National Archives were trying to recover what they thought were probably government records, historical records from Trump's presidency that they believed he took with him to Florida, and they were trying to get those records back. Those aren't necessarily classified. Those are just sort of historical documents of his time in, in the White House. And in the course of trying to get those documents back, there was a long exchange between the lawyers for the government and the lawyers for Trump, and eventually Trump agreed to turn over 15 boxes of documents. That was in early 2022. The National Archives opens those boxes and they find more than 100 classified documents in those boxes, at which point a new concern develops, which is, wait a minute, this isn't about government papers anymore, this is about classified matters. And so uh, that sets in motion a series of events which gets the FBI involved, which leads to a grand jury issuing a subpoena for the return of all papers marked classified in Trump's possession. And in June of last year, just about a year ago, a federal prosecutor and FBI agent show up at Mar-a-Lago to retrieve what they are told is all the classified documents Trump's lawyers could find. It's about 38 documents. So they get those documents, but almost immediately after getting those documents, the FBI begins gathering evidence that suggests that, in fact, Trump has not turned everything over. And as they pull that thread investigatively through um, security camera footage, through witness interviews, and through some other pieces of evidence, the FBI and the Justice Department become convinced that there is still a significant number of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. And in August of last summer, they conduct a court-ordered search, the, the FBI raid that a lot of people remember. It's a remarkable development with the former president himself confirming that the FBI has executed a search warrant on his home in Palm Beach, Florida today. Another day in paradise. This was a strange day. You probably all read about it. And it wasn't the first time federal agents had been to Mar-a-Lago, their first visit in the spring. And in the course of that search, which a judge approved, they find another 103 classified documents. And so, so much of this investigation since that day has been about why were we the government, why were we the investigators told that they had returned everything they could find in terms of classified documents? And were, was the president and his senior advisors, were they involved somehow in trying to keep this stuff even after they'd gotten the grand jury subpoena? And that's where all the obstruction questions come up. That's where all the obstruction evidence comes up. And so you basically have two different halves of a case that reinforce each other, one the mishandling and the other the obstruction. And when you have evidence of each, in some ways it makes each half of that equation stronger as a case. Wow, thank you for breaking that down. 
So if we could talk a little bit about willful retention and what that actually means, was Trump trying to hide these documents? So I think what investigators have been putting together is their best evidence to show that this was deliberate and that he didn't want to return things, even when told he had to. So to make a case against someone like Trump, he is a unique kind of suspect in a case like this. And to make a case against someone like him, they have to show that he understood fully that he was required to turn these things back to the government. And that's why the subpoena from last spring is so important, because it's essentially a written document. It's a written version of all that paperwork I talked about that says this stuff is government property. You do not get to keep it or share it with other people. And and in the case of the subpoena, we need it back right now. And so, so much of the obstruction question and so much of the mishandling question stems more from events after the subpoena than from the event of taking documents from the White House down to Florida. I mean, among the wilder details in this indictment are that when Trump is talking to his own lawyer about what to do, he sort of asks, you know, well, shouldn't we just say we don't have any? Um, you know, maybe we just can't find any. Um, and he, in, in, the, in the telling of the indictment, he seems to be trying to find a way to just not give them back. And uh, some of the most damning evidence in the indictment uh, are things that Trump himself allegedly said. Uh, there are things that Trump's uh, aides or, or relatives said uh, that in seemingly acknowledging that these boxes with these documents were around in a lot of different places. There's an incredible photo of, of boxes almost to the ceiling stacked up in a bathroom next to a shower. There's uh, photos of a box that had you know, tipped over and spilled out and the papers that had spilled out, you could see classified markings on some of them and people are sort of texting each other about, oh, look at this. Um, it it presents a picture of a, a degree of carelessness and degree of lack of concern about um, very sensitive secrets and stuff that is jarring even after you've, you know, reported and read and followed all of the things that we already knew about this case. Do we know anything about what's in the actual documents that are in question? We've reported a few things. So first, we've reported that one of the types of classified documents that they went looking for in this process were documents with markings about nuclear secrets. Um, nuclear secrets is its own category of classification because that type of scientific knowledge and that type of you know political diplomatic military knowledge is considered especially sensitive within the government for the obvious reasons. Um, so we know they went looking for that and they found some of that. We also know, uh, we've reported in the past, that some of the documents th that were the most sensitive that they found in the course of this investigation involved U.S. intelligence gathering that was aimed at China. That's significant because some of these documents were so highly classified that the investigators doing the work did not have clearance when they began the investigation to look at these things. So when they found them, they had to then go and get clearance. Even very senior officials did not have clearance to look at some of these things once they were found. Um, and I think that speaks to the, the nature of some of this information. That's not to say that all 300 documents here were that sensitive, 
but there were highly sensitive documents among those 300. We also know and have reported that um, one document discussed Iran's missile program, which is obviously a subject of great interest, you know, diplomatically, militarily. So, Devlin, what do we know about the Justice Department's case, where it's at, and who are the people leading it? An important part of this case is the fact that it's being run by a special counsel. And, and a special counsel is sort of a, a strange breed of prosecutor with that's only partly within the Justice Department. It is essentially a, a special prosecutor tapped to re- investigate a particular matter and report directly to the attorney general. Um, so in many ways, they're like a U.S. attorney, but they're actually in some ways more important than a U.S. attorney and more independent than a U.S. attorney, but still ultimately a prosecutor within the Justice Department. And the person that uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland tapped for this is a guy named Jack Smith, a longtime corruption prosecutor at the Justice Department, uh, dating back to the Obama administration and before. Um, he's also in recent years been working uh, in Europe on uh, war crimes prosecutions involving uh, the former Yugoslavia, in which he also uh, indicted a former head of state in a very complicated case in a very politically uh, explosive, fraught, uh, difficult case. Um, So I think it's easy to see why the attorney general thought Jack Smith's combination of, of experience is the right one to take on a case like this. But the reality is there really is no case like this. Ultimately, this is a uh, going to be a, a, an amazing trial criminal process to watch because there's never been a defendant like Donald Trump in the federal system before. After the break, we zoom in on Mar-a-Lago and what Trump has been doing since the news of this indictment. We'll be right back. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. So what do we know about where Donald Trump is right now, how he has taken in this news? So for the last couple days, we're told Trump has basically been huddled with his legal advisors in Bedminster, um, his golf club, and uh, they've just been sort of talking to each other and strategizing how they're going to go at this. When, When his lawyers were notified Thursday night that an indictment had been filed, Trump very quickly posted on social media and started punching back. Our country is going to hell and they come after Donald Trump, weaponizing the Justice Department, weaponizing the FBI. We can't let this continue to go on because it's ripping our country to shreds. And basically said this is unfair and um, shows that the administration is out to get him for political reasons. 
It is not what I would call typical federal defendant behavior, but I don't think I certainly had never expected him to behave like a typical federal criminal defendant. And look, when you get indicted, that means you're going to trial. I, I think in the federal system, certainly more than 90% of the defendants plead guilty. I don't think that is there's much chance of that when it comes to Donald Trump. Doesn't Again, not like a lot of federal criminal defendants. And so now I think what is so incredible about this process is Trump and his lawyers have to plan for a trial in South Florida that he, you know, abused and misused the country's classified secrets. Well, we also know that there were classified documents found at the home of uh, the current president, uh, Joe Biden. Trump has claimed in the past that he shouldn't be charged because Biden's actions were worse. So what are the facts here? So it's it's a really important point, uh, although not necessarily the way Trump means it. Um, it is true that classified documents were found at, at I, I believe, Biden's office and his home. Um, and they're not supposed to be there, period. However, one of the ways in which I think the Trump case is really unique and amazing is the degree to which there's a thing in the classified world called spillage. And that the idea being, you know, uh, not every time you, you know, spill a cup of coffee, is, is that a crime? Sometimes people just spill a cup of coffee. The important thing to do is when it comes to, you know, classified information as opposed to coffee is clean it up as quickly as possible, prevent it from getting out in the wider world, and figure out if anyone meant to spill it. It was this intentional or not. And so what we have seen a lot of so far in the Trump investigation is a lot of indications from videotape to witness accounts to, in, in as, as, as we've reported as well, Trump's own words on, on, rec- on recording, um, an intent to do this, a, de- a, a deliberate, apparent deliberate effort to both keep this stuff, not just when you leave the White House, but when people demand for it to be returned. Because I, I, the thing I always tell people who sort of struggle with like, well, if Biden had it and Trump had it, why is Trump in so much trouble? Mm-hmm. And the simplest way to answer that question is because when he was told he had to give it back, he didn't give it all back. Do we know yet about what their legal defense is going to be? So they've actually made a bunch of different legal defenses. One is um, Trump's claim that he had an automatic declassification system for the things that went to Florida with him, that they didn't need paperwork. It was essentially something he could do in his own head. And if he thought it while he was president, they became declassified. I will say I have yet to find a human being who's worked in government who agrees with that assessment, although there's a few people in Trump's orbit uh, who I think have told him that that's a valid defense. So the other defenses that have been raised are essentially there was never any intent to conceal, uh, none of this was willful, uh, if there were misunderstandings or if the government tried to set him up. That's been one of the defenses. Uh, You know, he shouldn't be charged because the government laid a trap for him, essentially. I I will say, as someone who's covered a lot of classified leak cases, those are not what you would call standard or most lawyers would call successful uh, defenses. But I think a lot of 
Trump's legal strategy in general, and this goes back to other investigations on other issues, is to basically throw as many punches in public as he possibly can toward the prosecutors coming after him and make it a painful process for the prosecutor to keep coming after him. So this federal indictment, of course, follows another indictment, uh, one that happened in New York. Could you tell us a little bit about that case and, and refresh our memories on what that involved? Right. And that one is essentially, in some ways, a throwback, like as much as the the Miami indictment is about his post-presidency uh, life. The indictment in New York by the Manhattan district attorney is actually about his pre-presidency life when he was running back in 2016 and hush money payments were made to women who alleged that they had had essentially extramarital uh, hookups or affairs with Donald Trump. And so that case essentially alleges that Trump defrauded uh, the election system by not reporting payments that were made uh, in 2016 during the campaign uh, to keep these women quiet. Part of what makes this even more complicated than it would otherwise be is that there is a trial scheduled in the Manhattan case for next March. So when you talk about the documents case, the immediate question is, okay, so when are you going to do a trial on the documents case? Because Obviously, the background, the landscape of all of this stuff is that he is running for, for president. The, you know, the primary season starts in, you know, a, a matter of months. And the nominating conventions are next summer. Um, the potential complications and overlap here between the legal world, the criminal world, and the national political world are really incredible if you stop and consider the possibilities. And one of the things we've heard from the former president as well as congressional Republicans and other allies is that this is a witch hunt. This is going to interfere with his ability to run. Um, but the way you're explaining it is that all of these cases are incredibly different with different stakes, um, different involvement, different places. Yep. Um, you know, do you think from your conversations with people that people understand that they are very different, and especially this case with the classified documents, um, the stakes are pretty high. The stakes are very high. I, I think, look, I, I think anytime someone is charged with a crime, a felony, or let alone a list of felonies, um, and has to try to defend themselves in court, I, I, I covered courts for many, many years. Those are very high stakes. Whether you're the president or not, that is an incredibly uh, consequential situation to be in. One of the real challenges here, one of the real tests here is as much as, you know, these cases are about Trump and his conduct and whether his conduct was a crime, one of the real challenges here is also uh, this is a test of our legal system. This is a test of if you put a, a politically um, divisive but also in some ways very popular person through the legal system, through the criminal justice system, does that legal system maintain the credibility that it is acting fairly and accurately and justly uh, at a time when people want to argue about all sorts of stuff and want to argue that everything is rigged. I think, as, a, as a, someone who's covered the courts a long time, I think one of the biggest questions in my mind going forward is, will Trump destabilize the justice system the way he has been destabilizing to so many other institutions in American life? 
And just to be clear, he can still run, even though this is going to play out while he's in the primary season uh, and potentially a general election, he can still run for president. He absolutely can. And in fact, in American history, people have run for president from prison and in some cases get thousands of votes. Uh, So it is absolutely technically and legally possible for someone to not just be on trial or be convicted or, or be in prison and, and also run for president. And I also think it's it's a tricky thing to sort of, if you don't like someone politically, counting on the Justice Department or the legal system to sort of eliminate that person from the political scene, I think is a very, in some ways, um, misguided and uh, sort of wishful thinking kind of view of it. Because I think, in my experience, I don't think the Justice Department or the legal system serve to protect the political system. I actually think it's the reverse. The political system, at the end of the day, protects the legal system. And if if those two things decide that they are not in the business of, you know, working together while staying out of each other's hair, you know, politics and the law in this country are going to change drastically. And so, again, like I said, I think this whole dynamic with these cases is a significant test of what do the American people and the, and the court system actually believe is the right thing to do and why? Um, I think it's a huge test. Devlin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rhonda. Devlin Barrett reports on national security and law enforcement for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Eliza Dennis. It was edited by Rena Flores. It was mixed by Sean Carter. Our team includes Maggie Penman, Rena Flores, Ted Muldoon, Martine Powers, Alahe Azadi, Monica Campbell, Eliza Dennis, Ilana Gordon, Ariel Plotnick, Arjun Singh, Jordan Marie Smith, Rennie Svirnovsky, Sabi Robinson, Emma Tonkoff, Sean Carter, and Renita Jablonski. Our intern is Tanya Chavla. I'm Rhonda Colvin. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.